We are on lesson six. We're about a year and a half into our study. And so it's been a little while since we've talked about some of those unique characteristics of the book of Revelation. And tonight we come to another very symbolic section in this book. And so we want to review a bit about uh, how to interpret symbols, especially when we encounter them in Revelation. Uh, we don't use a special hermeneutic for prophecy. It's simply predictive language. It talks about things in the future. It's no more metaphorical or figurative than normal speech. So we want to just reinforce how we read regular metaphors, similes, uh, figures of speech in normal language, and then how we apply that to scripture. We're going to start with this so that when we jump into Revelation 17, we're not surprised by the symbols that we see there. So we're going to cover three things, what a symbol is, how to interpret them, and some biblical examples. The English word symbol comes from the Greek word symbole, maybe, which means a throwing together. A symbol is some object of real Im imaged or action which is assigned a meaning for imagine. the imagine sorry mm -hmm. no, or action which is assigned a meaning for the purpose of depicting rather than stating the qualities of something else in a symbol the meaning is assigned a person would not normally associate a symbol with that which it symbolizes for example nothing inherent in the nature of good figs would normally suggest Jewish captives in Babylon, and yet that is what they they symbolized in Jeremiah 24, 3 through 5. Very good. So that's an important point, and it's kind of nuanced here in how Zuck says it. Um, but essentially, it's not the symbol that gives meaning to the referent, that, uh, that thing which it refers to, that thing that actually is reality, but it's the thing with, within reality that gives meaning to that symbol. So the connected point doesn't mean that whatever is true of that symbol becomes true of the referent, but there's really one line of connection being drawn between the symbol and the referent. And we have to understand what that connection is. Otherwise, we can, we can find a bunch of different characteristics of what a fig is and then apply all those to Israel, but that's not really what Jeremiah was doing. Jeremiah had one specific intention of why he was using a fig. So the fig doesn't characterize Israel, but Israel is characterized by a fig. So we're, I've got nine principles of interpretation here, and we're going to start with the difference between those two things, the object and the referent. The object is the symbol that's used or employed in the figurative language of the text, and the referent is the thing that is actually pointing to that real thing whether it's stated explicitly in the text or if it's simply what the author is referring to and leaves unsaid. And then the meaning of that symbol is the resemblance between that object and the referent. And that's what we're trying to get to is how are they related? So we have this pretty salient uh, example here from John 1.29. says, the next day he, that's John, saw Jesus coming to him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he's using a symbol here. He has the object, a lamb, and he is referring to Jesus with that. 
the purpose of this lamb, there are plenty of different uh, things we can characterize a lamb by, but not all meanings of a lamb are being um, attributed to Jesus here, specifically the one that John says, who takes away the sins of the world. This is the relationship between Jesus and a lamb, where a lamb is used in Leviticus as an atoning sacrifice for sin. So Jesus is an atoning sacrifice for sin. This is the meaning of Jesus being the Lamb of God. That's the connection between the symbol. And oftentimes, if you dig around in the text a little bit, you can come to clearly understand why the author is using that kind of symbol. To give you the other side of the coin here, in Isaiah 53, it says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So here, sheep are being used as an object, but it doesn't refer to the Lord in this case. It refers to us. So we don't want to attribute the atoning symbol of a sheep to ourselves. That wouldn't make sense. That's obviously not Isaiah's intention here. But he says that like a sheep, we have gone astray. Each one of us has turned his own way. So this is the characteristic of a sheep that he is applying to us. So we want to understand how the symbol is being used in order to understand what it means in its context. Second one is to remember that symbols are based in reality. Symbols are based on literal objects or actions which exist in reality so that a meaningful resemblance can be drawn between the object and the ref referent. In prophetic passages, symbols are sometimes based on imagination rather than actuality. Yet those symbols contain elements of reality, such as heads, horns, a leopard, wings, a woman, a basket, etc. Thank you. So the idea behind that is the symbol is supposed to be something from our reality that we can draw on. A symbol isn't going to be something that we don't understand. The sim symbol is going to be something easier to understand. So that when trying to inform us about a more difficult spiritual concept or trying to paint a picture of a more complex um, concept, they're going to use a simpler symbol so that we can move from the easier to the harder. Uh, kind of the same principle as a picture is worth a thousand words. The idea here is that these, uh, these symbolic pictures that are used in language aren't, or that they're concrete pictures, they're not abstract. We're going to know what we're looking at, even if we don't at first know what it means. The research we do, the, uh, the textual analysis we're going to do gets us to that meaning of how it connects to the referent sometimes identifying what the referent is. But the symbol itself is always going to have pieces based in reality because we need to first grasp those before we can grasp the meaning, the connection between that and the referent. So for example, here in Daniel 7, Daniel writes, after this, I kept looking and behold another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. If you put all of these pieces of the symbol together, it doesn't, it's not something we know from our reality. We don't have a four-headed leopard with wings, but we know what leopards are. 
We know what bird wings are. We know what heads are. And so these pieces are given to us and we can understand each of those pieces. And though it makes one symbolic picture, each one, each piece that is connected to reality is a symbol of its own. Mm -hmm. And we have to first understand how those are connected before we understand how it applies to the referred object. Another example would be Revelation 7.3, which is one of the passages we're looking at tonight. It says, he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. Now, we don't know a scarlet beast like this with seven heads and ten horns, but each of those symbols are going to have some meaning. And thankfully, in Revelation 17, the meaning is explained for us explicitly. The angel actually tells us what each of these symbols means. That way, when we put them all together, we can apply it to the referent more easily. So when we have a very complicated or convoluted symbol, we want to break it down into its pieces and understand it in its pieces first. And this is one of the most important ones, I think. We want to search for any meaning that is explicitly assigned. If we're given a symbol, and then we are told in scripture what that symbol means, we don't want to reinterpret that. We take the interpretation from the scriptures and come to understand how they are connected. We don't try to reinterpret the interpretation to fit what we think it should be. So here is an example, Revelation chapter 20, verse 2. Uh, he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent. Those are symbols of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And here is a pattern we're going to see all over the place when we get symbolic language. The picture is trying to be drawn of this serpent to give us some imagery back into Genesis 3 to show us that this is the same old enemy. Because if you go back into Genesis 3, Satan and the devil is never their name. It's not actually until here in Revelation that we ever get that connection. We supply that when we read Genesis, but Revelation is the one that actually informs us that that is the connection. So here we're given a predicate connection. That means we've got the object, we've got the referent, and there's a connecting verb. So here the dragon is Satan. The serpent is Satan. We want to look for these in scripture, and we want to not reinterpret then who Satan is or what the devil is and say, this doesn't actually mean the Satan that we know from the rest of scripture, but this is uh, just uh, bad things or bad vibes. That's not, I mean, that's a bad example, but that's not what we want to do. We want to understand how they're connected, not try to reinterpret the devil or Satan as another symbol. The same here in Revelation 11. It says they're dead bodies. That's speaking of the two witnesses that are killed at the midpoint of the tribulation. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. So if we had just mystically Sodom and Egypt, we might be able to come up with some guess as to what this means. But there was only one great city where our Lord was crucified, and that was Jerusalem. So we don't have an option here. That mystical symbol of Sodom in Egypt has to be Jerusalem. We can't make it Rome. We can't make it Babylon. We can't make it New York, which some people try to do. It's Jerusalem. Those symbols are easy to understand, even if they are hard to believe. 
Daniel 7, 24, as for the 10 horns out of this kingdom, 10 kings will arise and another will arise after them. He will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. So we have 10 different horns and they are called kings in this case. And they're even referred to um, as a person, a he. These are persons, real people that are like horns in a kingdom. We're going to look at this passage more a little later, um, but here is another one of those instances where the object is connected to the, um, to the referent. Here it's appositionally, not with a predicate connecting verb, but the understanding is these horns refer to kings. We want to interpret those kings literally. All right, and then a caution. Don't assign the wrong characteristics of the symbol to the referent. Any one of these objects is going to have a bunch of different characteristics to it that we could um, apply to a referent, but we want to understand what does the author mean? What connection did he intend between this object and the referent? And that's the connection that we want to apply. For example, the object of a lion has multiple different characteristics. It is valiant, but it can also be rabid. So here in 1 Peter 5, 8, it says, be, sober, uh, be of sober spirit, be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking who he can devour. So here the devil is our referent, and the roaring lion is the object. And the connection between it is that, um, that ravenous um, search for prey. But here in Revelation 5, 5, the object of a lion is used to describe Christ. We don't want to apply the same ravenous symbol here because that's obviously not how John intends it. So in Revelation 5, 5, it says, stop weeping and behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Now, actually, to get at this meaning behind the lion of the tribe of Judah, we would have to also look back to where this symbol originally comes from in Genesis 49. Um, but we do have this overcome that when we put this lion in the root of David and we understand those symbols in their original context, then we understand that he is the... Uh, he is the victorious Messiah, and that victory or the ability to conquer over an enemy, that is the idea being drawn from a lion here. So in the next verse, we read, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. So we get more symbols. He's not only a lion, but he's also a lamb, and he's standing as if slain. That is telling us how it's connected to him, that just like an atoning lamb, once again, using John's imagery from 10 years before when he wrote the book of, or the gospel of John, that slain lamb, and then these seven horns and seven eyes, and he interprets that for us, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, we might not fully understand what those seven spirits of God are, but that's the referent. That's what it's referring to, that we take literally. The horns and the eyes are symbols that refer to the seven spirits of God. 
Now we're going to play around with these passages more still, but I want to add one more principle of interpretation. If the meaning is not assigned within the passage or within the immediate context, we don't want to supply a meaning. We want to search the scriptures to find a meaning. And if we don't find a meaning, we still want to refrain from supplying a meaning. Just because it's not present in the scripture doesn't mean it gives us license to make it up. That's when we got to say, we don't know. But here in Revelation 5.5, John is pulling from Old Testament imagery. Genesis 49, 10 through, or 8 through 10 says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. That's a, a kid lion. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion and as a lion who dares rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So the imagery that John is pulling from all the way back in Genesis is this rulership from the tribe of Judah. And he's using the symbol of Judah, which is the lion. Then there's also the root of David which comes from many different places, but I've pulled up two here, Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. Now, David had uh, multiple branches that came off of him, and one of those branches was cursed to never receive the throne, and that was Jeconiah's line. And so when Jesus was born as a son of Mary, who was a daughter of David, not by Jeconiah, but by Nathan, then Jesus was a branch of David that was a righteous branch that was raised up. And so he could reign, whereas Jeconiah's line could not reign, and Jesus was not from, Jecon from Jeconiah. And Oops. In Isaiah chapter 11, it says the shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Jesse was David's father. This is a little bit different symbol. But in Isaiah 10, we see the house of David brought down to poverty, brought down to next to nothing. And in Jesus' day, when he was born, his parents from the house of David were so poor that they couldn't even afford a sin offering. They had to purchase two doves instead of a, uh, a lamb or a goat to offer as a sin offering. So the house of David was a truncated tree and a shoot. Jesus Christ was born out of that house and it became a fruitful branch. So both of these images are pulled from the Old Testament so that when we see them here in Revelation 5.5, 5, we understand that he's talking about this promise of a ruler in Israel, starting with Judah, the son of Israel, going through David, who is the rightful king of Israel. And so Jesus, the one who was worthy to take the scroll from the hand of God the Almighty, was the one who had been promised all the way back from the very beginning. And this actually goes back 
even further to Genesis 3. He was promised to Eve, and we see that just a couple chapters in Genesis or in Revelation 12, we see that imagery pulled out. We also have a possible Old Testament reference to this seven spirits of God, but this one we have to be a bit more careful with because it's not explicit by any means. But it may be referring to the same thing that this Holy Spirit that would come upon Jesus. We have seven different genitive uh, descriptions of it. It's the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, of understanding, of counsel, of strength, of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. The idea that we can grasp from both is the completeness of the Holy Spirit. We don't want to uh, dive too much deeper into that, otherwise we end up getting into the weeds. All right, number six of nine, focus on the major and not the minor resemblances. All right, one reference, one, uh, one item from reality might use various symbols to describe it. So for example, Christ can be um, symbolized by a lamb, a lion, a branch, or a root, just like we've seen. The Holy Spirit uses different symbols like water and oil, wind, or a dove. So we can't lock the referent into one symbol. In the same way, on another token, we can't lock one symbol into one referent. So whenever we see uh, water, for example, we can't always say that that's the Holy Spirit. For example, in, the, uh, in Genesis 1-2, we have the waters and the Spirit of God hovers over those waters. This isn't the Holy Spirit hovering over the Holy Spirit. In fact, the, those waters are literal, not symbolic at all. We want to uh, take each one of these symbols in their context and by their context. Number eight, this one's another very important one. One symbolic object in a passage does not make all objects in that passage symbolic. For example, in Revelation 19, verse 15 to 16, it says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with the rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, there is some symbolism in this passage, and there is a lot of literal language in this passage. The temptation is because it's a very incredible passage. We want to symbolize the things that are difficult to believe. But we don't want to do that. We want to symbolize the things that are impossible by God's standards, not by our standards. So here, we've got this sharp sword coming from his mouth. This appears to be a symbol. This is not something that happens within God's uh, created sphere. It's, uh, I mean, granted, it could be literal, but this would be very strange because of the context and we see it um, appears to be judgment, the sword representing judgment. But it strikes down the nations. This is not a symbol. There's no reason in this passage to assume that it is a symbol. A rod of iron is a symbol, um, but a, more of a figure of speech even than a symbol. It's a metonym. It has to do with the rulership. Um, this rod of iron is uh, used to describe the, 
the thing behind it, but it's not the rod of iron itself that is ruling, but it is the king behind it that is ruling. This is a metonym, a, an item used by the referent to refer to the whole referent. This wine press, which he treads, is a symbol, and we get the, the explanation of that imagery back in chapter 16. The wine press of his wrath is uh, very closely related to a wine press, um, but it is not making wine. It is the literal destruction of the armies of the Antichrist. But then we get to verse 16 here. There is no reason to take his robe symbolically, no reason to take his thighs symbolically. These are apparently literal. And that kind of leads us into the last one here. Hard to believe doesn't mean it's a symbol. Just because it doesn't seem like reality uh, doesn't mean we have to say there's some sort of a symbol here. It has to be in a place where we are either told that it's symbolic somehow in the passage, or again, it would be impossible. Even those ones where it seems impossible, it's, it's usually not a symbol. For example, all the stars falling to earth. Uh, if you, we understand Greek and how they use that phrase stars, they would use it for asteroids and comets as well as actual gas giants. They knew the difference, but it was a catch-all term. So it would uh, not be stars as in stars like our sun falling to earth, but probably stars as in space rocks. All right. In Revelation 8.12, we have an example here. The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck, so that a third of them would be darkened. The day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. Now, this is one passage that a lot of interpreters find hard to believe, and so they symbolize the sun, the moon, and the stars as um, either different political powers or different religious powers and say that they are suppressed by this world kingdom. There is nothing in the text that supplies us a reason to believe that this is symbolic. This is literal. These, the sun, the stars, and the moon will lose a third of their intensity. That is part of that judgment. But then we move here to Revelation 12, chapter verses 1 through 2, and we have again a mix of symbolic language, but we don't want to make everything symbolic just because there are some symbols in it. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was with child, and she cried out, being in labor, in pain, to give birth. Now here's one of those things where it would be an impossibility. A woman who is stretched between the sun and the moon, and she is clothed with the sun, and uh, has a crown of 12 stars. This is not a literal picture, but it is a symbolic picture that we, again, don't want to supply a meaning for. We want to find the meaning in the Old Testament. And it goes all the way back to Joseph's dream of Israel and uh, their worshiping of, the, of him, Joseph, in Egypt. But this becomes a picture of Israel that is traceable throughout Jewish history. This woman is symbolic of Israel. Now, we did a video on this probably about a year ago. Um, if you want to go back and review why we say that she is a symbol. Uh, but the child that she gives birth to is not a symbol. This actually happened. And this woman 
why it's used as a symbol is because she does represent all of Israel, but it's using what's called a synecdoche, which is a substitute of a part for a whole. And what it's doing here is substituting Mary for all of Israel. You can look in the, um, the Magnificat, as it's called, where Mary refers to herself as um, the, uh, the what, blessed above all Israel or something. She, she received the, uh, the uh, responsibility of giving birth to the Messiah, something that all of Israel longed for, all women in Israel had longed for. And so here, she's used as a symbol of all of Israel. But the reason it's not just Mary here is because this, again, is drawing imagery all the way back to Eve. We've got a lot of different moving pieces here. And so there's an object used and a few different reference for it. But the child she gave birth to is a literal child. This was Jesus. She gave birth to him. Israel, represented by Mary, gave birth to Jesus, the child. In verse 6, we see again, this child is a literal object. It is not a symbol. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That was his crucifixion and ascension. And then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. So now we see why a synecdoche was used, so that this woman could do double duty. She is representative of Israel in the past, and she's representative of Israel in the future. The same woman who brought about the Messiah, Israel, is going to be protected in the wilderness by God in the future. And in Revelation 12, this imagery is tying together that promise of a Messiah with that promise to Eve of a coming one who would conquer the seed of the, uh, the seed of the serpent. All right, the last one we're going to look at here in our symbolism is Revelation 12:14, because again, we see that this symbol of the woman, and again, so far she's the only symbol we've seen in this passage. I skipped the symbolism about Satan but uh, only the woman has been symbolic in these passages about the woman and the child. The two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Now here, this woman is still that symbolic woman, and the wings of the great eagle that she's given, uh, this is either something that we cannot assign a meaning too, because we don't understand what it means, uh, but it is possibly symbolic. That's one where we've got to say we don't fully know. We don't have a uh, historical precedent for it. The only historical precedent we have for it, which is possible, is that when God brought Israel out of Egypt, he said he brought them out on the wings of eagles. So there it was used symbolically. Uh, if we have to tip the scale one way or another, we would say that this is symbolic. But uh, we don't have to be dogmatic on every assignment of a meaning for a symbol. We want to understand the general thrust of the text. 
God is going to miraculous, miraculously protect Israel during the second part of the tribulation. 